Can you hear me? Good, good. We're going to just assume so. Um, It is good to be with you today, if not a little scary, to be on this side of the catechesis hour. Um, But before we pray today's collect together, I thought I'd start just with a short introduction, because I haven't actually met uh, many of you, uh, much to my regret. So first of all, my name is Sarah Stanley, and I've been coming to All Souls for a little over two years. I moved to the area about three years ago to be the Special Collections Librarian at the Wheaton College Library. I'm a PK, or a preacher's kid, and I was raised in the Wesleyan holiness tradition in a wonderful church in Danville, Illinois, which is about two and a half hours directly south of here. After college, I was delightfully surprised by the beautiful worship of an Episcopal church in the northern Virginia suburbs of D.C. and was confirmed there in 2003. I've moved around a lot as an adult, a lot, but have been mostly part of Anglican churches since, and I'm grateful to have found my way to All Souls. So today, October 6th, we celebrate the feast day of William Tyndale, Reformation-era Bible translator and Christian martyr. Let's pray today's collect together. Almighty God, you planted in the heart of your servant, William Tyndale, a consuming passion to bring the scriptures to people in their native tongue and endowed him with the gift of powerful and graceful expression and with strength to persevere against all obstacles. Reveal to us your saving word, as we read and study the scriptures and hear them calling us to repentance and life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So today, we remember the witness of William Tyndale, I have to tell you that I jumped at the chance to teach today's catechesis because Tyndale is one of my heroes, and I wanted an excuse and the accountability uh, to study him a bit more. One of the reasons Tyndale's story is so significant is because it's a reminder of how immeasurably precious it is to have the Bible in in one's own language, to be able to access scripture. It's really hard to appreciate something that we have regular and abundant access to. In our time and place, the Bible is everywhere. We have it in print, in the version of our choice. We have it online through websites like Bible Gateway, where we can read any of the 61 English translations available there, never mind the versions that are in other languages. We have study Bibles. My least favorite might be the self-help study Bible. as it, it is an inherent contradiction, but my point is that we have a lot, and mostly that's a good thing. It's a great thing, but it's hard to appreciate the significance of our access when access to so much is so incredibly easy. But it really is important. It's vital to remember how valuable accessing Scripture is. One, remem- one reason is that remembering its significance helps encourage us to pursue it, to live it out, As the words of our colleagues say, reading and studying the scriptures enables us to hear it, calling us to repentance and life. Or in the words of a more contemporary Bible translator, Eugene Peterson, a deep reading of the Bible allows it to penetrate our lives and create truth and beauty and goodness. I personally need the reminder. 
all the time. When I talk about not appreciating access to scripture, I'm talking about me. I must have something like 10 Bibles at home. Three of them are large, beautiful family Bibles that got passed down to me as I'm the only librarian in the family. I love the Bible. I've studied it. I have a degree in theological studies, and yet I still struggle with the desire sometimes to pick it up and read. And so for me, remembering the story of William Tyndale is a reminder of the gift that I have in being able to read and study it in a language that I can read and understand, and that it's something to treasure and study. So with no further ado, let's turn to the story of William Tyndale. Like most people born in in 15th century England, we don't actually know exactly when or where William Tyndale was born. He was probably born in 1494 near Dursley, a village in Gloucestershire. The Tyndales were a well-to-do family with uh, past connections to royalty, and Tyndale had three brothers who would go on to be wealthy and influential men. The first actual historical record of William Tyndale that we have comes from the University of Oxford, where he took a BA in 1512. He then completed an MA in 1515, a degree which gave him the permission to study theology. That it didn't officially include the study of scripture bothered him. When he had the chance to study it, it doubtless had a transforming effect on him and one he wanted to share with others. In John Fox's famous book, which we now know as Fox's Book of Martyrs, it was first published in 1563, he records a mostly factual account of Tyndale's life, and he notes that Tyndale tutored fellow students at Oxford in the scriptures and was known there to live a virtuous and unspotted life. Fox then states that after his Oxford studies, Tyndale went to Cambridge, though historians disagree about whether this actually happened. However, studying at Cambridge at the time would have allowed him to study more Greek, which would have interested him. Tyndale was a gifted linguist and would eventually master eight languages, including French, Greek, Hebrew, German, Italian, Latin, and Spanish. In 1521, Tyndale returned to Gloucestershire and became a tutor to the children of Sir John Walsh, a wealthy landowner, and his wife Anne. There isn't much known about him during this time, but the position would have uh, given him time to study and possibly begin to do some translating work. In 1516, the scholar Erasmus had translated the New Testament into Greek, and Tyndale possibly then translated that in turn into English. At some point during this time, Tyndale was ordained to the priesthood and became a somewhat popular, if controversial, preacher in the region. His emphasis on scripture got him in trouble, uh, sometimes with those who prioritize uh, church teaching. Again, John Fox recounts an encounter that Tyndale had with a learned man who said that people were better without God's law than the Pope's. In response, Master Tyndale, hearing that, answered him, I defy the Pope and all his laws, and said, If God spare my life ere many years... I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the scripture than thou dost. So it is clear that at this point, Tyndale already had some kind of mission, some kind of vocation to translate the Bible out of Latin into English to make it available to the common person. And it may be helpful for us now just to take a step back and consider what access to the Bible looked like in early 16th century England. At this time in history, there was only one European country that banned biblical translation outright, and that was England. (laughs) 
That prohibition had been put in place because of followers of a 14th century cleric, an Oxford professor named John Wycliffe, who denounced the corruptions of the church. Wycliffe founded his criticisms on a close reading of the Bible and argued that ultimate church authority rested on scripture and not a succession of fallible popes and clergy. It also hugely frustrated him that only a few had access to the scripture as he thought it was important for people, for the common person, to be able to understand it. These beliefs inspired his followers at Oxford to produce an English-language Bible, which we can see an example here, that was translated from the Latin Vulgate. The Bibles proved popular enough to provoke an official response. In 1401, the English Parliament passed a law that heretics would be burned at the stake. In 1409, the Archbishop of Canterbury banned the making or reading of Wycliffeite Bibles without receiving prior approval from the church. In 1415, the Catholic Church met at the Council of Constance and formally declared Wycliffe's doctrines heretical. Though the Bibles were banned, there must have been many produced, as we still now have over 250 manuscripts. Most of them are parts of the New Testament. These manuscripts now make up the largest supply of medieval English literature that is still in existence. So this was the situation that William Tyndale found himself in in 1523 when he left Gloucestershire for London to seek official support for his translation work uh, from the Bishop of London, Cuthbert Tunstall. Bishop Tunstall was a friend of Erasmus with whom he had worked on the second edition of his Greek New Testament, and Tyndale thought that he might be friendly to Tyndale's purpose. Unfortunately, it was not to be. As Tyndale later wrote, his house was full There was no room in my Lord of London's palace to translate the New Testament. It must must have been disappointing for Tyndale, though, as his biographer David Danielle notes, though Tunstall snubbed him, he didn't persecute him. That's an important difference, because that wouldn't be always the case. Tyndale would go on to stay in London for almost a year, where he preached at a church called St. Dunstan's in the West. St. Dunstan's apparently had connections with the growing reform movement in England and with cloth merchants who would offer crucial support to Tyndale for funding his work. Tyndale eventually realized that he wouldn't be able to translate the Bible into English in England, so he left for Germany in 1524. Tyndale next turns up in Cologne, Germany in 1525, where he was working with the printer Peter Quintel to publish his English translation of the New Testament. While illegal in England and restricted in Europe, printers often took such risks as the payoff was usually worth it. However, the project was discovered by an Englishman named John Dobnik, who later related the story of how he coaxed some inebriated workers from Quintel's shop to tell him about this project, this illegal project. They informed him that 3,000 copies of an English... Yeah, right? (laughs) There's an argument against, you know, indulging. Um, You never know. They informed him that 3,000 copies of an English New Testament were being printed at their shop so that England would be brought over to the side of Martin Luther. Dobnik raised the alarm, and as he wrote about it sometime later... The two English apostates, Tyndale and his assistant, William Roy, snatching away with them the quarto sheets printed, fled by ship, going up the Rhine to Worms. 
Tyndale managed to flee with 22 of the 28 chapters of the Gospel of of Matthew printed, along with a prologue to Romans. This portion has become known as the Cologne Fragment. It was in many ways inspired by Martin Luther's 1522 German translation of the New Testament in Look. It used similar illustrations, format, and type, and even some of the marginal notations were revisions of uh, Luther's notes. You can actually see these would be the marginal notations we're talking about. More than 99 of these notes appear in the margins, uh, more per page than any other text that Tyndale would go on to print. They were all explanatory, intended to aid the reader, the common person, in understanding the Bible. The fragment was also printed in the quarto format, which is a size designed for personal use, unlike the large folio size intended for churches churches or wealthy collectors, something like the Gutenberg Bible. So I'm just going to just quickly just do a show you what book sizes are. So folios, they're all dependent on how the the sheet of paper is is treated. So you would have a large sheet of paper, and if you just fold it in half once, that would be a folio. And so that would be large, that would be big, that would be used for worship services, used in churches. If you folded it again, it was called the cordo. So a much more personal size. Okay, which is what this Cologne fragment was, was printed in. You could fold it again into what is known as the octavo. So even more personal, even smaller. So, and most, most of Tyndale's works would go on to be printed in the octavo size. Octavo size. There's one here on the screen that actually, it's called the 16-mo, folded once more, and it's, it's tiny. So Tyndale fled to Cologne, moving 125 miles up the Rhine River to Worms, which was a safe Lutheran city. And there, in 1526, he printed the first complete English New Testament. It was quite different from the Cologne fragment. He published it in the octavo format, which would have been almost pocket-sized, and so it was very personal, and it was easier to smuggle into England. Interestingly, uh, Tyndale would publish the rest of his works in, in this size. He also printed this New Testament without any marginal notes or prologues, so unlike the Cologne fragment, an indication that he probably felt an urgency in making his translation available. And it soon was, for the books were smuggled down the Rhine into the ports of England and Scotland, hidden inside bales of cloth. Again, Tyndale's friendships with the cloth merchants proved very helpful, and copies got around quickly, For the first time, the New Testament, translated from the Greek, could be read by anyone in England, anyone who could read anyway. In the words of David Daniel, what had been hidden in Latin for many centuries, and for much of that time confined to monasteries, was now suddenly and for the first time available to everybody. Though Christian people in Britain were certainly aware of the great events of the Christian calendar, of Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter, Many of the words of Jesus in the Gospels and almost all of the writings of Paul were unknown to the common man or woman. It is hard, probably impossible, for us to imagine a world where we don't have access to the words of the Christmas story. But for the first time in English, Mary's Magnificat could be read. And Mary said, My soul magnifieth the Lord, and my spirit rejoiceth in God my Savior, for he hath looked on the poor degree of his handmaid. 
Behold, now from henceforth shall all generations call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. For the first time, the words of God were available in an accessible, familiar tongue. And many of these phrases are now familiar and dear to us. I am the light of the world. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Take, eat, this is my body. Tyndale's two main goals for his translations were accuracy and clarity. He strove to be faithful to the Greek while also making it understandable for the common person. There is a simplicity to much of his work. Many of the words he used are only one syllable. For example, he gave us the phrase, give us this day our daily bread, which he didn't have to. It could have been much longer, much more complex, but instead it's simple, it's direct, and it's powerful. It's hard for us to appreciate that the choices he made in the 1520s can have such an impact on how we expect our scriptures to read in 2019. Needless to say, the power of these words alarmed the authorities of Tyndale's time, who continued to fear what a vernacular scripture would do to the church's authority. Bishop Tunstall, Tyndale's would-be patron, prohibited the book, writing that in the English tongue that pestiferous and most pernicious poison dispersed throughout all our diocese of London in great number. What was worse, he arranged for a burning of the books at St. Paul's on October 27, 1526, where he preached a sermon charging that he had found 2,000 errors in them. This might not be completely surprising, as Tyndale wasn't translating from the Latin. But the burning of God's word truly shocked Tyndale. He couldn't believe that the authorities would dare to do it. And as one biographer noted, he lost some innocence when it happened, and he gained a greater appreciation for what he was facing. So he would spend the next nine years of his life in hiding. We don't know much about Tyndale's movements after 1526 as he was in hiding. However, after 1528, all of his work was published in Antwerp, Belgium, which suggests that he was living in or near the busy port city. The city also had the benefit of having plenty of good printers and a strong trade relationship with England. The first two books he printed in Antwerp were from the print shop of Hans Luft of Marlborough, which was a pseudonym of one of the most well-known printers, Martin de uh, de Keyer. The real Hans Luft was actually Martin Luther's printer in Wittenberg, so the name did have significance. In May 1528, Tyndale published The Parable of the Wicked Mammon, and for the first time, he printed it under his own name. He explained that he had done so to distance himself from his former assistant, William Roy, who was publishing things that uh, Tyndale found troublesome. The book only had a few references to the parable in Luke 16, commonly known as the parable of the unjust steward. Instead, Tyndale expanded beyond that parable to argue that while good works are valuable, they naturally, uh, they naturally flow from a true faith, just like fruit grows on a tree. Tyndale mused, For God giveth no man his grace that he should let it lay still and do no good withal, but that he should increase it and multiply it with lending it to others and with open declaring of it with the outward works provoke and draw others to God. The book quickly gained notoriety in England and was officially banned in May 1530. 
Later in 1528, in October, Tyndale published The Obedience of a Christian Man, which would, be, which would become his most influential work outside of his translations. In it, Tyndale declared the two foundational principles of the English Reformation. The first was that scripture holds the ultimate authority for, for Christians, and the second was that the king held ultimate authority over the state. Tyndale boldly criticized what he saw as the church's abuses, writing that the hierarchy of the church is guilty of, quote, selling for money what God in Christ promiseth freely. Scripture should be available to the Christian as it reveals the nature of God and his power without the need for an intermediary. Sometimes I have hard, a hard time with multisyllabic words. <laughs> like the parable of the wicked mammon, the book was quickly banned, though widely read. In fact, it was most likely read by Anne Boleyn, who gave a copy of it to her husband-to-be, Henry VIII, who reportedly was a fan of the book's defense of royal authority. <laughs> It's helpful when people make arguments for you. There you go. In Europe, knowledge of Hebrew was growing, and Tyndale learned it. While we don't know quite where, uh, Worms would uh, likely be a place that was the main center of Jewish learning in Germany. In England, Hebrew was almost unknown, and the two scholars in Cambridge who knew it weren't interested in translating. However, Tyndale was. In January of 1530, copies of Tyndale's translation of Genesis with a prologue titled W.T. to the Reader appeared in England. Tyndale had translated the five books of the Pentateuch, which could be bought individually or together. And Tyndale wrote prologues for each, and in his prologue to Genesis, he wrote, I think this is really important, just this idea of this, this approach to scripture, kind of what I was talking about in the beginning. Though a man had a precious jewel and a rich, yet if he wist not the value thereof, nor wherefore it served, he were neither the better nor richer of a straw. So basically, if he has this jewel and he doesn't value it, then it's better that he didn't have it. Even so, though we read the scripture and babble babble of it never so much, yet if we know not the use of it and wherefore it was given and what is therein to be sought... It profiteth, it profiteth us nothing at all. It is not enough, therefore, to read and talk of it only, but we must also desire God day and night instantly to open our eyes and to make us understand and feel wherefore the scripture was given, that we may apply the medicine of the scripture, every man to his own source. According to David Danielle, T- uh, Tyndale often used the words understand and feel to express how a Christian should respond to scripture. So now that it's available to be read, it isn't enough just to read it, but it must be lived and felt so that it might be medicine to one's own situation so that it might heal. And this is a healing that is present now and not just some indeterminate time in the future after death. So the original Hebrew text was now in Eng- English, and Tyndale now had given the world the phrase, let there be light, and there was light. Surely this is another example of a simple and powerful approach to translation. He also translated the name of God as Jehovah for the very first time. In the Pentateuch, he wrote 132 marginal notes, of which 24 mentioned the Pope. For example, the note for Exodus 32 read, the Pope's bull slayeth more than Aaron's calf. 
Though as with the 1525 Cologne fragment, most of the notes are expository, trying to aid the reader in understanding the text. During these years, Tyndale was also in the midst of a public debate with Sir Thomas More, Henry VIII's close advisor and chancellor of England. In June 1529, More attacked Tyndale in his book, Dialogue Concerning Heresies, where, among other things, he took issue with Tyndale's English translations of the words congregation, love, and repent, instead of the church's church, charity, and do penance. Tyndale was surprised by the attack and responded in 1531 with an answer unto Sir Thomas More's dialogue of 1531. He used the New Testament as his authority, again, condemning the church for its corruptions in practice of scripture. I'm going to just skip ahead a little bit. During all of this, Tyndale continued to work on his translations, both translating new books of the Bible and revising previous versions. He published short expositions on the Gospel of John and the Sermon on the Mount, and he explored their themes and the nature of each. By 1534, a printing house in Antwerp had printed four editions of Tyndale's 1526 New Testament, which testified to, testifies to its popularity. In fact, one was printed in that 16-mo I mentioned, I mentioned earlier. However, Tyndale had continued to revise the text, so in 1534, he published a new edition that included over 5,000 changes. This new version featured prologues for almost every book, um, and he talked about, in, in the general talk, uh, prologue, he talked about the nature of biblical translation and explained the importance of Hebrew influence on the New Testament, something that had uh, previously not been understood. Uh, the small volume featured marginal notes and scriptural cross-references, which you can kind of see right here. And it included uh, several uh, woodcut illustrations, including 22 for the book of Revelation alone, which helped explain the sometimes confusing text. By the spring of 1535, William Tyndale had translated the New Testament, the Pentateuch, and the historical books of the Old Testament, including Joshua to uh, Second Chronicles and the book of Jonah. These last were only in manuscript form, in handwriting, um, because they hadn't been published yet. It was also in the spring of 1535 that Tyndale was betrayed by somebody he considered a friend. In 1534, Tyndale had moved into the English house in Antwerp, where he was relatively safe and under the protection of English merchants. However, a young English nobleman in need of money, Henry Phillips, befriended Tyndale. He tricked him into leaving the English house, where officers then arrested him. He was taken to a government official who immediately had the English house raided and confiscated Tyndale's property, including his manuscripts and books. His translations of the Old Testament historical books were thankfully somewhere else, possibly with his friend John Rogers. Tyndale was taken to the castle of Vilvord near Brussels, where he was incarcerated. While his English merchant friends tried to get him released, even appealing through connections to Thomas Cromwell, the current chancellor to King Henry, they were ultimately un- unsuccessful, partly because of the sustained actions of Henry Phillips, who was desperate for his money. Undoubtedly, Tyndale suffered for the 500 days he would end up spending in prison. He was subjected to long examinations by a magistrate who was known for cruelty. He had been charged with heresy or for being a Lutheran, and this charge wasn't in dispute. There was plenty of evidence, but his accusers were attempting to turn him back to Catholic orthodoxy. 
Tyndale provided his own defense, which unsurprisingly was founded on scripture. And his chief accuser, uh, Jacobus, Jacobus Latimus, reproduced much of Tyndale's words in his documentation of the proceedings. And that's how we know that he used a certain phrase repeatedly, translated into English as, the key to the understanding of scripture as salvation. Scripture was his defense, as what it was his salvation. Apparently, Tyndale also conducted his responses in a manner so unfailingly gentle and serene, it frustrated Latimus. The one manuscript that we still have in Tyndale's actual handwriting is a letter he wrote from prison to a government official. That's what's seen here. He asks the official for warmer clothing as his own had been confiscated. He just really had rags, and the winter was coming. He also wrote, and I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening, is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Most urgently, he asked for permission to have the Hebrew Bible and his Hebrew grammar and dictionary so that he could pass the seemingly unending hours by studying. It is unlikely that any of these requests were met. In August 1536, Tyndale was condemned as a heretic and was removed from the priesthood. The public ritual of removal involved scraping his hands and forehead anywhere the anointing oil would have touched. In early October, traditionally today, the 6th, Tyndale was brought out to a public place where a chain was placed around his neck. John Fox records his last words as, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And this is a woodcut that actually um, appeared in Fox's book, Book of Martyrs. Because he was a scholar, he wasn't burned alive. Instead, he was strangled first, and then the executioner uh, burned his body. In a December 1536 letter to Thomas Cromwell, his agent, John Hutton, wrote from Belgium that, quote, they speak much of the patient sufferance of Master Tyndale at the time of his execution. In 1537, Tyndale's friend, John Rogers, gathered all of his biblical translations and combining them with the work of Miles Coverdale, published a complete Bible in English, now known as the Matthews Bible. At the foot of the title page appear the words, set forth with the king's most gracious license. Tyndale's work comprised two-thirds of the Bible, but his name couldn't appear on it owing to his status as a heretic. So John Rogers published under the name of two disciples, Thomas and Matthew. 1,500 copies of the Bible were printed and imported into England before they soon sold out. Though Tyndale's friends couldn't publicly credit him, they did succeed acknowledging him in a small way. On the last page of the Old Testament, before the beginning of the Apocrypha, appeared the initials WT. And that's actually what's shown here. It's kind of hard to see. And there are still some estimates in terms of just how much of Tyndale's work ended up in the King James Bible. But I think it's generally accepted that 83% of it, uh, of the New Testament, was Tyndale's work, and like 76% uh, of the Old Testament was his work. So significant, significant contribution. And that is who we remember today.
complete the insane absurdity of Christian division means that most Christians have had to choose Francis and demonize Tyndale or choose Tyndale and demonize Francis. And we're at a church where both can be celebrated on the same day. That is, that is not to be taken for granted. And the, the glorious work that went into both of these presentations, if you don't know Francis, you'll see it at the 11. But my goodness, thank you. I mean, just like the English Bible was a distant whisper for people in 1500, these stories, unfortunately, I think are a distant whisper for us. We know he's important, but we've forgotten all these stories and we brought them to us. Thank you. You're welcome. Wow. Question. Yeah. Sarah, I'm, I'm a little bit unclear as to the relationship between Wycliffe's work and Tyndale's. How, how broadly disseminated was Wycliffe's work uh, and, and what, what made Tyndale's so much Okay, good, really important question. So Wycliffe's work was broadly, broadly disseminated. What made Tyndale so significant is that he didn't go to the Vulgate as the source of his translation. He went back to the Greek and to the Hebrew. And so Wycliffe's, I mean, it was good, but it wasn't as authentic or factual as it could have been. And so Tyndale probably didn't even use it at all in in his translation work when he went back to the Greek and, and the Hebrew. So... Yeah. So, yeah. Sorry. Okay. So, uh, I'm wondering where does where on the timeline here does the Catholic Church actually start doing English masses? Because because correct me if I'm wrong, that they started that after French. Is that right? You know, I don't know when they uh, started doing English masses. I do know that the first English New Testament, a Catholic New Testament, appeared in 1582. Yeah. So he was actually executed in the Netherlands. Yeah. So what was the relation? I'm sorry, but it seems yeah in Belgium. Well, and I didn't really make that clear. He wasn't executed by English authorities. He was executed by Belgian authorities because he was a heretic, um, because he was a Lutheran. And in Belgium, um, Luther- it, was, it was illegal to be a Lutheran. Yeah. Wow. So that's how. So, so it really wasn't like Henry that executed him. Then. No. That's, no. I think, a common misperception. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So then where kind of in, the, in this timeline did Henry make his um, I don't, it was, um, so it was, was it 15, so 15, later 1520s, I mean it was with, I don't know the exact date, but it's, it's, you know, when he, um, yeah, late 1520s. So he was never, I mean, Henry went back and forth in terms of his appreciation for English scripture. So at some point he thought it was a good idea and then he went back. So it wasn't, it was the great Bible a couple years after the Matthews Bible when it became, like, you needed to have it in the church. Our evangelical heritage here also doesn't begin with Henry. It begins with this, that you are tracing the the motif and all those English phrases you brought for us. That's what we're about on our, that side of our heritage. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. 
I mean, yeah, the more I read about him, just really the more I was overwhelmed by, by his story. So, yeah, Jennifer. Just a quick fact. Anne Boleyn and Tyndale died the same year. If that puts any of the Tudor history in context. Yeah. Thomas More had been executed the year before in 35 because he refused to approve uh, Henry's marriage, uh, divorce of Catherine and marriage of Anne Boleyn. So, yeah. Yeah. What a great, great question. You might have thought I'd put him up to it, but I didn't. Um, I actually took one of the things that we have in our special collections. Uh, so we have, when we think of special collections, the special collections at Wheaton's kind of rare books and unique papers and things, we, do, we collect things that have to do with the history of evangelicalism, of Protestant uh, Christianity. So, of course, the Bible is at the center of this. So we actually have a fair amount of Reformation-era Bibles because the Bible continued to develop a lot in 16th century England. This, what I actually have here, is a facsimile, or it's a replica, of the New Testament from 1526 that Tyndale printed. So if anybody wants to take a look at it, uh, you're welcome to do that. There was the handout has a page, I think it's um, from maybe the Gospel of Mark, I forget which one I included. Part of it is just looking at that and seeing what, what that's like, because it's really actually hard for us to read now, just this, this 16th century printing was, was difficult to read. But we, have, but we have this there, we have other versions, we have the Geneva Bible, which was the most popular Bible for 100 years in England. And interestingly enough, all of these Bibles are available for anybody who comes to our reading room uh, to see. So really, anybody can show up. We're on the third floor of the Billy Graham Center, um, and you can come and look at at any of these texts, and I'd be really happy to help you um, look at them or answer questions, too. So thank you, Jim. So.